Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio, and this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that explores the dark, intricate, and complicated landscape of the long war, or what used to be known as the War on Terror. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, we have a special guest. He's been with us before, uh, Edmund Fitton Brown. He's the coordinator of the United Nations Security Council Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. And previously, he served as the British ambassador to Yemen from 2015 to 2017. Um, Edmund, thanks for joining us again. I, I think this is what, our, your third or fourth appearance. It's always a pleasure to, to have you on. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. Yeah. It's, uh, so the the Edmonds team, they issued another, that's a, what, 1267 report? Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. I'll yes. yes. And so it has, a, you know, it's basically the state of the jihad. The, what is Al-Qaeda? What is the tal- of the Taliban? What is the Islamic State and all of their allies? What is, wh- and what's happening and where it's happening? It's an excellent read. I recommend everyone to go to the United Nations, download it and, and read it. Uh, whenever Edmund's teams issues a report, we, we take note and then we scramble to get Edmund on our program. So that, and thanks for joining us on such short notice too, Edmund. I really appreciate it. Always welcome. Yeah. Always happy to come. Yeah, no. So, and a a lot has gone on this year, right? Uh, we've had, um, you know, well, we just had the death of the Islamic State's Amir, um, uh, that's uh, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashemi al-Qureshi, who go, the man of many names. Um, we're going to have to settle on what we'll call him. Um, this the report. It, it, the reporting period. It's from June to December two thousand and twenty-one. So Qureshi's death is not covered in this report. However, significant activity against the Islamic State is covered. Um, and we will get to, get to that. Um, but first, uh, before we talk about the Islamic State, I, uh, and I'm, I'm kicking myself for this, but we do have to discuss Afghanistan, the, the collapse of Afghanistan and the rise or the restoration of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, um, to me, was the seminal event of 2021. And I think you 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 would agree your report seems to uh, note this. Well, you know, what do you what do you think about this? Evan? Well, you're right, Bill. That's exactly what we said in the report. You know, these reports uh, cover a six month period. And, you know, the the most, uh, you know, the, the main landmark event of the second half of last year uh, was certainly the change in Afghanistan. Um, so um, we say in the report that uh, the implications are not all clear yet. You know, of course, the situation is uh, is still evolving there. Um, the Taliban is not monolithic. Um, there's a whole uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, judgments at this stage need to be a little cautious about exactly what this means, but it is significant for a number of reasons. One of the first things that happened, of course, was that we saw um, a uh, one of our one of our first sanctioned uh, Al Qaeda terrorists, uh, Amin al Haq, uh, is actually number two uh, on our uh, on our uh, list of um, sanctioned Al Qaeda uh, individuals, uh, and you know he uh, he turns up uh, back in Afghanistan, goes to his uh, goes to his uh, hometown in Nangarhar province. Uh, lots of uh, footage of him arriving, um, some photo- some photography of him uh, also in uh, Kabul around the same time. Um, and that was just a reminder, an important reminder, uh, that the Taliban are very al-Qaeda friendly. They're allies. Uh, they always have been. Um, they're allies and partners. Um, and so um, we have to 
uh, we have to acknowledge that Afghanistan is likely to become more of a safe haven uh, for Al Qaeda under the Taliban. And of course, you know, now in uh, in uh, in Afghanistan, you have uh, doing the job of de facto interior minister. Uh, you have Siraj Adin uh, Haqqani, the head of the Haqqani network, and a deep, close ally of al-Qaeda over many, many years. So what this means in practice, of course, is where it gets interesting. This is what you have to unpick. Um, it means, you know, are the Taliban going to arrest or expel or uh, suppress al-Qaeda? It seems pretty clear to me that the answer to that is no. Certainly, we see no evidence of it yet. And yet the Taliban is aware, as it tries to court international support and recognition, it's aware that that's one of the categories or one of the criteria under which it's being judged. And so we may say that the Taliban are not going to want al-Qaeda to do anything that would seriously embarrass them. So you can see that this could lead to some kind of middle ground where al-Qaeda is safe and maybe even uh, some al-Qaeda people come into the country who weren't there previously, and al-Qaeda is able to carry out a number of functions in Afghanistan, uh, you know, recruiting, fundraising, training maybe. But at the moment, al-Qaeda doesn't have a developed external operations capability, so it costs them nothing at the moment to say, well, yeah, we won't, we won't launch any attacks from Afghanistan. They couldn't anyway, even if they tried. And of course, at the moment, under present circumstances, it wouldn't suit the Taliban for them to do so. So this is one on which we need to monitor this over the medium to longer term. Yeah, and uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, to me, the Afghanistan, you know, is a safe haven for for Al-Qaeda and other groups. You have an excellent section detailing how the various jihadist groups from uh, Eastern Turkestan, Islam, uh, Islamic Party, ETIP, Islamic Jihad Union, Islamic Movement is back. Various groups are are beginning to establish. The Taliban looks to integrate some of them. Uh, I'm going to circle back to one issue before we we move on. Um, Amin al Haq, who Edmund was discussing, who uh, returned to Afghanistan, uh, he served as Osama bin Laden's security chief uh, dur- during the Battle of Tora Bora. So he helped bin Laden escape Afghanistan. Um, my sources tell me that it was highly likely that he was sheltering inside of Pakistan. I don't think that's any surprise to any of our listeners or readers of the Long War Journal. Um, And if you watch that footage, I remember writing about that and publishing that video. He didn't just arrive in Afghanistan and return to his home in Nagahar. He was given an escort by the Taliban. The Taliban flags were flying. It was a parade. Um, So not only is, you know, it wasn't a, oh, well, he returned and we weren't aware of it. The Taliban sponsored him or however you want to put that. They they welcomed him with open arms and and basically gave him a hero's uh, return. It was the Taliban version of a ticker tape uh, parade. So. Um, yeah, I just found, I found that, you know, that's just what we see. I, you know, I always wonder how much we don't see what is what slips through the cracks. That's what always that's that's my fear. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm going to do a, a, a quote um, from the report um, here. Here it is. And it, it talks about the, the it, it highlights what you had just said. 
Um, but it's just put so well. This is what I love about the report. It's just very readable and it's very understandable, digestible. It says, uh, quote, there are no recent signs that the Taliban has taken steps to limit the activity of foreign fighter, foreign terrorist fighters in the country. On the contrary, terrorist groups enjoy greater freedom there than at any time in recent history, end quote. I just thought this was um, this is right in line with the, the analysis of the Long Word Journal of us in us, me, Tom and I, a generation jihad. The um, this we believe that the Taliban takeover over of Afghanistan is just bad news for everyone. We're starting to see evidence of this inside of Pakistan with the movement of Taliban in Pakistan. And uh, again, there's a, a, another section. Can you speak to that section uh, a little bit, Edmund, about the uh, various groups, how they're organizing in, inside of Afghanistan? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Um, so uh, one of one of the uh, interesting points that we make in the report is that you know we have some direct reports from um, from Central Asian uh, interlocutors about some of these characters being seen in Kabul. Uh, you know, which is obviously you know if you're a if you're a, if you're a, an embassy in Kabul and you see uh, and you see people that uh, that are a threat to you and to your country um, uh, suddenly appear. Uh, that that obviously is unsettling. So so that was that was I thought that was an interesting point. Um, you know the Taliban have made quite a big deal about um, you know one of the problems that they have in terms of their credibility is they've always denied that these people exist. They always they said oh well, there are no foreign terrorist fighters and you know we don't have we're not fighting alongside Al Qaeda and of course you and I know perfectly well Bill that Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent was fighting alongside the the Taliban uh, during the takeover of Afghanistan. It's hard even to know where the Taliban ends and Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, uh, you know, sort of begins. So, so when the Taliban talk about this subject, it has very limited credibility. And interestingly, I should give them a right of reply, and I will right now. They they have actually uh, they've actually uh, responded to our report and said that it's untrue. Um, so, you know, that, I, I will tell I will give them that much. They. They have they have responded and they've said that it's untrue. Um, we know that uh, whilst they don't talk about these things, uh, we know that they've tried to register some of these people. You know, sort of trying to get an inventory of who's in Afghanistan and where. Um, we assessed that in previous reports as being possibly a preparatory step they were taking. You know, in case case they were put under a lot of pressure by 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 the United States or by others um, to. Uh, to show that they were taking this issue seriously, and I guess you know any any uh, any aspiring authority, and of course even before they took over, you know they 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 always had uh, they always had aspirations to become uh, the Islamic Emirate again. Um, you know th- to have a bit more control was not was that was not a hard thing for them to want to do. It wasn't a it wasn't a particularly easy thing for them to achieve though, because you know. Afghanistan is a complicated place and you've got factions, including within the Taliban, some of whom are uh, more closely wedded to these groups than others are. And now it's a slightly different uh, set of calculations. So um, I think what arises now is, you know, if they're trying to govern, are these people a problem for them or could they become a problem for them? Or are they an asset for them? And I think this is what I meant when I said earlier about it's still being an emerging picture. What will happen? Are these people going to be naturalized? Are they going to be given uh, Afghan identity documents, passports? Uh, it's very interesting that the Haqqani network has deliberately taken control of a lot of these portfolios within the de facto authority. 
And where can that lead? Do you, so do you end up with them saying, hey, there aren't any foreign terrorist fights in Afghanistan? Well, maybe by then there aren't because they've all been given Afghan passports. And the question of to what end? But one of the things that I think we need to watch here is there are some forces within the Taliban who are aspiring to gain international confidence, international support, and are probably less sympathetic than others to a sort of a romantic or historic attachment to international jihad. But of course, there's no guarantee at all that they can actually get their way within the Taliban. And they're certainly not necessarily going to be able to persuade people like Sirajuddin Haqqani or certain Taliban hardliners that they are right. And this is where it gets interesting, I think, because the the risk to the Taliban is that even if they have some voices of reason who are trying to push them in a more uh, more moderate or more internationally friendly direction, taking the hard decisions to back that up would actually involve marginalizing or suppressing people. You know, it might involve taking coercive action against extremists or on a different sort of a different sort of area of concern suppressing the drugs trade but what about the taliban who themselves have been making money from the drugs trade and the people they've been allied with who have grown rich off the drugs trade or off other forms of uh, of uh, organized crime and the question is does the taliban have either the desire or the determination to follow through in a way that alienates some of its members and some of its constituents and potentially drive some of them into the arms of ISIL. Right. Now, that's an excellent point. And you had mentioned Sarajuddin Haqqani, um, who in your previous report, you note that a, I believe it was one or more member states identified as a, a quote, Al-Qaeda leader. Is that correct? I mean, yes. I mean, we, we, that, that was that was in our twenty eighth report. I think yes. that was that was that was that was a a memorable quotation from one member state. Yeah, yeah. I remember it was footnote eleven, if I recall. Um, the yeah, and and if Sir, if Sirajuddin Haqqani is a member of Al Qaeda, and if he and he uh, let's face it, he's if not the most powerful, one of the most powerful Taliban leaders who controls the interior ministry, who controls essentially the Taliban's, um, what they call their special forces, their suicide units. The odds of suppressing Al-Qaeda decrease dramatically. Someone like, but it's, and it's not just Siraj, it's the cadre, his cadre of brothers and cousins and, and uncles and, and, and other, other members of the group that have their claws within the Afghan government. Um, this is where I think, you know, is it possible that, Let's say that Baradar, um, Mullah Baradar, who's often viewed as a, you know, I'll use the term moderate, and I, I always say, show me a moderate Taliban. Um, but you know, if I, I think we know who's going to win that war, if if a, if if a conflict, um, if a when I say war, if a um, disagreement broke out between the two, I think we we can be certain about who would come out on top. The Haqqanis played an integral role in the Taliban's victory. Um, he's an enormous, they, the family itself is enormously powerful. And that's where, you know, is it possible that the Taliban moderates? Sure. 
Um, people also said it was possible that the Taliban would participate in, in government with the previous Afghan government, that it would respect women's rights and, and the constitution and things like that. I think what we've seen over time is that the Taliban has done what the Taliban wants to do, and that's control Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I, let me just offer one thing on this, Bill. I don't want to get deep into Afghan politics because that's not really the subject that we're on. And, and uh, you know, and of course, the monitoring team doesn't particularly, you know, m- much as we care about good governance in Afghanistan, it's not it's not it's not actually our direct uh, mandate. Uh, I think the one point I would make that is interesting is and you're, I think you're right to question the word moderate. And I, I also want to sort of perhaps also question the word hardliner, even though I myself used it earlier. Uh, I, I think instead of moderate, I quite like the term pragmatist or pragmatic. I agree. Um, you know, uh, I, I agree. I don't think Mullah Baradar is a moderate. I think he is pragmatic. Um, and um, one of the things that I think is sometimes uh, slightly off with the analysis that we see of what's going on in Afghanistan is is a sort of a very binary analysis, as if, you know, there's this, this bunch of people who are like, oh, these are these are the hardliners, and then these are the moderates. And I think it's far more complicated than that. And you can think of people who could perhaps reasonably be considered hardliners, like Mullah Yaqub, who have their own problems with Haqqani and the Haqqani network. Uh, and so it's much more complicated. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a multi-sided uh, and quite factional picture. And uh, and again, I don't want to, you know, I mean. I, I'm cer- so I, I certainly agree with your hypothesis that the uh, Haqqani relationship with al-Qaeda is a, a, a matter of acute concern. It is. It's also worth just saying that by some definitions, the Haqqanis can be seen as pragmatists. I mean, they're, cert- they're certainly not moderates and they're certainly not liberals of any kind, but they are experienced in making independent tactical decisions based on what they judge to be in the long-term strategic interests of the Taliban movement. So I can also understand the perspective that you get in some parts of the international community. Well, you should talk to Siraj, given partly because of his position, you know, the fact that he has a highly relevant position in the de facto authorities, but also partly because he has the confidence and the experience, possibly, if he judges it in his interests and in the interests of the Haqqani network and the interests of the Taliban, to pursue a certain policy line. That's well said. I, I much prefer the term pragmatist. And look at the Haqqanis. We look at their relationship with Pakistan. It's very pragmatic. Uh, how they leveraged that relationship to operate on both sides of the border. And and so, yeah, I, I certainly agree. They're pragmatic. And I, 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 you know, anyway, it's my belief that the Taliban and analysis that the Taliban in general, uh, Al-Qaeda relationship has been forged in 20 years of fire. They defeated the United States. The I think the top, well, anyway, I won't go into that uh, any further. So, But this is a good segue to move over to Al-Qaeda. Um, you, uh, I'm going to talk, talk about the Al-Qaeda. You talk about the Al-Qaeda leadership, and you note that it's been reported that Al-Qaeda leaders in the past have been inside of Iran. I'm going to read a quote um, from the report here. Um, and it, it refers to the, how the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan is, is uh, I would s- 
I would argue it increases the Al-Qaeda's um, Al hand. They have a little more freedom movement. You even say that in your. So here's the quote. It says, quote, the Taliban takeover has made it more likely that Mohammed Salahuddin al-Halim Zindane, that's uh, Saif al-Adil, in the event that he succeeds al-Zawahiri, that's the emir of Al-Qaeda, will have the option of establishing himself in Afghanistan to take up his new role, although one member state has denied his presence in the Islamic Republic of Iran. So why is it more likely that Saif al-Adil, now with the fall of Afghanistan, um, and with Afghanistan coming under Taliban control, why is it more likely that he may go there? So um, the reason um, that that reads the way it does is that to some degree it's building on our 28th report where we were uh, before the changes in, Af in, Af in Afghanistan. And we made the very specific point in the 28th report that Saif al-Adil had a, uh, an Africa background. You know, he's an Egyptian. Um, he has operated in, uh, in Africa uh, in the past. And we were trying to figure out if the... If there was to be a sort of a coronation of a new al-Qaeda leader in Afghanistan in the circumstances that prevailed in early 2021, we saw that as problematic for the Taliban. You know, I mean, you talked about the parade for Amin al-Haq. And yeah, we, I agree with your analysis. I think you put it very well. Um, I don't think that kind of parade would have, uh, would have ever happened before August, you know. Um, so when we were writing before August and saying, this could be a problem. You know, the leader of Al-Qaeda relocates to, the new leader of Al-Qaeda relocates to Afghanistan. And, it, you know, there's a sort of, a, you know, however low profile it is, nevertheless, it's effectively a coronation. Um, it just so directly gives the lie to uh, Taliban assurances uh, under the Doha agreement that it might be a problem for them. It's, I said earlier, the Taliban don't want Al-Qaeda to embarrass them. They don't want Al-Qaeda to damage their own strategic interests. And we thought at the time that that might damage their strategic interests. And so we, we, we speculated that Saif al-Adil might just look at his operational history in Africa and think, is there somewhere in Africa that I could relocate to? And we, we didn't conclude anything at the time because there was no very obvious place that he could go. But we just acknowledged that this was a must be a consideration. It must be a dilemma. So what we wanted to say in this report is that, again, going based on that ticker tape reception for, um, for Amin al-Haq, um, we judge that it is now much less of a problem for the Taliban and for al-Qaeda if Saif al-Adil does return to Afghanistan, if he, if he takes over and becomes the leader of, of al-Qaeda and is in Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and, moment, and I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, just, just, to, just to finish off the point, you, you mentioned Zawahari, you mentioned that he is the current leader of al-Qaeda. Now we have proof of life for him at least as recently as a year ago, well, January 2021. Videos have been continuing to emerge. The most recent videos don't particularly update that assessment. But, you know, some people are saying how imminent is a change of leader of al-Qaeda our judgment on that remains unchanged. We think that al-Zawahiri is, is uh, in poor health. We don't think that he will be able to continue to lead al-Qaeda uh, for more than the short to, well, let's say the short term, not, not even the medium term. So we think that there is still a succession issue that al-Qaeda is going to have to face sooner or later, uh, probably sooner. And that's why the, the issue of Saif al-Adil is, uh, is significant.
That's very, very interesting. Yeah, it's a, a his health. Jawahiri's health. That's the real question. He's what in his seventies now. Uh, he's look. He survived twenty years uh, of the most one of the most intensive manhunts in, in history. So um, and now it's very likely if he's not in Pakistan that he's in Afghanistan. And you mentioned look for two two quick points. I don't we, think we, that, we, we we assess that he's in Afghanistan, but we you know again we, we're not certain of that. Sure. Yeah, that is that is my guess as well. It would make sense. But he's not going to return to a parade. Saif al-Adel isn't going to return to a parade. They can get away with that with uh, uh, with a hawk, right? Because he's a relative. Nobody's it's the reality is nobody really except for people like you and me know who he is. Um, So it's not going to, you know, cause the outrage. Someone like Saif al-Adel. Someone like, uh, you know, Ayman al-Zawahiri returning to a, to a ticker tape parade um, in Afghanistan would, would certainly be more problematic. And I do think the Taliban is sensitive to that. And I think al-Qaeda is sensitive to that as well. They understand which side their bread, each understands which side of their bread is buttered on. Um, that's, which, that's my which, opinion. Well, I agree with you. And it means this is still very much a sort of a, a live and vexing issue. Uh, we don't have a clear answer to it. Um, And of course, I don't think Al Qaeda necessarily have a clear answer to it themselves either yet. And of course, we shouldn't forget the possibility that even if uh, Zawahiri were either to become ineffective and inactive uh, or to die, um, we shouldn't rule out the possibility that that simply is not acknowledged. Because if they acknowledge it, then that immediately begs the question of, well, who is the new leader and where is the new leader? So we could even face a period where uh, where where uh, al-Zawahiri was was actually no longer leading al-Qaeda but it was not being acknowledged and therefore there was no there was no new uh, coronation issue right yeah i mean it would be wise for them to figure out all the problems get him moved get him established long before making that announcement be good operational security uh if Saipal Adol, as so you note that one member state um denied his presence in, in iran um, I think we could all probably assume who that one member state may be. Um, if he isn't in Iran, where would he be? Um, would he be in Pakistan, Afghanistan? Could possibly be in Afghanistan to the, today. Well, I mean, just just to make the very obvious point, I always have to make in these cases. We we, we never we never actually talk about which member states we get our information from. But um, in terms of where Saifal Adil could be. Um, we don't have any uh, any information uh, of uh, any other possible location where he might be. We, no, nobody nobody has come to us and said that you know he's in Syria or uh, you know or, or somewhere else. Um, so uh, so you know we're, we're, talk, we're, we're at the moment we're we're more focused on uh, how likely it is and how soon it might happen that he might turn up in Afghanistan or indeed somewhere else. Right. And let's all we all have to remember that Abu Muhammad al-Masri, Zawahiri's previous deputy, was uh, killed inside of Afghanistan. He was assassinated. I'm sorry, inside of Iran, in Tehran, um, alongside his daughter. So it's, you know, I I don't think it's a big stretch to think that uh, Saif al-Adol may be sheltering inside of Iran as well. Well, Um, indeed, indeed, we do. We do report that in our 28th report. It's just, it's just that the only update we had for the 29th report was uh, at least one suggestion that he might not be there. Yeah, that's that's not a knock on your report. I just sort of setting the table for the reader, for the listeners who, you know, like I said, may not be all geeked out on this like you, you and I. Uh, so um, really quick, uh, I'm Bill Raggio. This is Generation Jihad. We have a 
very special guest today, Edmund Fitton Brown. He is the coordinator of the United Nations Security Council Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. We're discussing their latest 1267 report, which is a, uh, I'll dare I call it the state of the jihad, um, how Al-Qaeda, how the Islamic State and all of their allies, um, the state of those groups and, and where they're operating. We haven't discussed the Islamic State. We're going to move that. We're going to move on to that right now. A lot of big news. Obviously, we had the the death of the Islamic State's emir. Um, but last year, Iraqi security forces captured uh, an Islamic State leader known as Sami al-Jabouri. He was the group's uh, financier and a, a potential successor to, to the now slain emir of the Islamic State. What was the importance of his capture? And do you think it, that his capture and the interrogation may have helped in the death of, of Qureshi? Yeah, it's a really important point, Bill. And I mean, it's, it, was an, it was another, as you rightly identify, another headline of our latest report was, uh, was about the uh, capture of Samuel Jabouri. Um, so Samuel Jabouri was a very, very senior leader of uh, ISIL and was uh, believed to be uh, the number two of, and we'll call him Abu Ibrahim because Abu Ibrahim is the, the name that he's very commonly referred to by the actual uh, recently deceased uh, leader of, of ISIL. So it's the sequencing here that's important. Um, Al-Jabouri was Abu Ibrahim's deputy and he was the finance chief. And if you think about what that means in terms of his access, it makes him really important. He was a crucial advisor and deputy to, you know, even if you, even if you believe that there were other people who were other potential successors to uh, Abu Ibrahim. Uh, he was critical as an advisor and as a deputy. The finance side is always incredibly important in any organization, in any terrorist group. Uh, he will have known where the money was and to some degree is. And uh, of course, a, a, another really important area of insight that somebody in his position would have had would have been ISIL core support to uh, remote provinces, to the affiliates outside Iraq and Syria. And so I can't imagine that someone better placed uh, to uh, to have known about the nature of the evolving relationship between ISIL core and the presences in places like Mozambique, the DRC, uh, the Lake Chad Basin, uh, ISIL Khorasan, of course, in, uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and, of course, the other critical point, he was captured, wasn't killed. So he is in Iraqi custody. And the question is, what is he telling them? Um, and that's so that's by way of setting the scene why it matters so much. Of course, they will have had resilience built in. They will have had other people who will have had the financial accesses, people, other people who knew where the caches of money are, knew the, proce the procedures for moving money and all that sort of thing. Nevertheless, you know, incredibly disruptive to have somebody captured who knows that stuff. So I can imagine that that will have caused quite a lot of difficulty. Then people said, well, okay, and then they would have replaced him very quickly. There would have been a new person. But we don't actually know who became the deputy when uh, Samuel Jabouri was captured. And even if there was a seamless transition, that person then only had a very short period of time to establish their credentials as deputy. So this represents a sort of a one-two punch. Um, you lose the deputy captured. A few months later, you lose the leader killed. And so we think that it's worth looking at these two things, as you have done quite rightly, 
uh, in association with each other. How much damage does it do to ISIL, not just to lose the leader, but to lose the leader immediately after having lost the deputy captured? And indeed, is there a link? Is there some causal link between the two? Is it possible that some of the information that Samuel Jabouri gave to the Iraqis and to the allies of the Iraqis uh, could have in some way led to the uh, to the killing of uh, of uh, Abu Ibrahim. Um, so really, really important point. I think I think the first the answer to the first question is that this is as serious a leadership blow as ISIL has ever suffered. I think you know it, it as compared with the killing of Baghdadi, which was a major blow in late 2019, because al-Baghdadi was a very visible leader of ISIL. You know, he, he was communicating uh, by video, by audio. Um, people had a very clear idea about who he was, what he looked like, uh, even a sense of, you know, his personality. Um, the problem for ISIL with Abu Ibrahim was that they tried to keep him safe by not having him communicate, but it didn't keep him safe. He ended up getting killed anyway. So that looks like a terrible failure. You know nearly two and a half years of this guy in charge, but not communicating, everyone having to get their information secondhand from Abu Hamza al-Qureshi, the spokesman. Um, and, and you know, they would probably accept the, the, the rationale for that. And yet it failed anyway, and he's still been killed. So I think this is a real gut punch for ISIL. Um, also, um, the question about, you know, what was the causality leading to his death? Yes, intelligence from the capture of Al Jabouri, but let's not forget the Hasaka uh, jailbreak, that huge operation that took place uh, in northeastern Syria just before Abu Ibrahim was killed. Now, you know, this is speculation, but you know, we're analysts together; we can speculate without drawing firm conclusions. Um, but if you are uh, Abu Ibrahim, and you know, you, he's, he was a man of substance. You know, a terrible person, but you know, he had he had the credentials to be the leader of uh, ISIL. He was a brute. Uh, he was a uh, criminal and a thug, and had a, a huge amount of blood on his hands. You know, he was known for his uh, brutality and his operational as well as his ideological track record. And you can imagine the frustration of sitting there desperately trying to stay safe. You know, you're, 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 people are saying, don't say anything, don't do anything, uh, don't get yourself killed in the way that Baghdadi got himself killed. Did he show some kind of flank that during the jailbreak, you know, those that are unable to resist the importance of that, the possibility of springing significant ISIL figures from prison, the massive sort of propaganda Gain that ISIL could get from you know undermining the credibility of of the uh, of the forces that were holding those people in uh, in Hasaka. Um, I, again, I can't answer this, but it's a, I think it's a valid question. You know, and you know, of course, of course, uh, you know, people are not going to tell you or me at this stage uh, what led to the death of Abu Ibrahim. But the problem for ISIL is that they have to try and figure it out because they're going to have to have a new guy. And that new guy has not yet been announced. Will they announce him in the way that they announced uh, Abu Ibrahim? Because Abu Ibrahim, if you remember, was announced by Abu Hamza, um, you know, within days of the death of Baghdadi. Do they repeat the template? Do they repeat the pattern? Do they repeat the approach to publicity and communications? Or, you know, are they now completely wrong footed because that failed? So what now? 
Yeah, that's uh, excellent points. I mean, you know, and um, really quickly, the New York Times, I believe it was New York Times, noted that um, the intelligence, the U.S. had intelligence on his location, Abu Ibrahim's location. Now, whether this is true or not, this is what the report says. It seems interesting uh, that they had that sometime in December. Uh, uh, Al Jabori was, I believe, captured. Was it October or December? Yes. Sometime in right. that time frame. That's when the Iraqis announced it. Yeah, when they announced it, at least, yes. And that also they had information that they had his courier. It always seems like when we get these guys, we find the courier. That's how we got bin Laden. He was a truck driver that was living with him. I would get, you know, again, just surmise that Jaburi would need to be in touch with his leader. And there's possible that that would be a linkage, but just something interesting, something to to think about. Um, I If that reporting is true, I suspect there's a direct link. Um, the other thing you note with the leadership, I mean, I think if it was just a matter of the Islamic State in, in Iraq and Syria, I mean, physically in Iraq and Syria, they could keep the successor's uh, identity. They could hide this for a time. They could be patient. They can do what they need to do because the reality is, is that everyone inside of Iraq and Syria is probably going to know. But this becomes a problem with the gov- with the uh, with the provinces, right? The, those are the ones that have to swear allegiance to the new emir, and they have to know who he is. They have to want to trust him, and so I think that's where that's where the Islamic State is in a bind right now. How do they do this so that the n- next leader is safe and secure? However, that they're able to maintain the cohesion of the Islamic State's global organization. So, yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point, Bill. I mean, just separate out two points from it, though. One is, um, of course, the strange thing about Abu Ibrahim is that they didn't know who he was. They never did, and and in a way, still don't. Although, if they, you know, if I guess if they uh, if they bother to Google, uh, if they bother to Google twelve sixty seven, they can find out. Um, but, uh, but you know, they always knew him as Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi, which, of course, is nothing other than a nom de guerre combined with some imagined honorifics. Um, it's, a, it's, it, 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 it's, it's an alias. That's all it is. Um, so that was the, the route they went down was to sort of to emphasize the myth of the man. They never showed him. So, you know, I saw, these supporters around the world, they never knew who this man really was or what he looked like. Now, of course, you know, we're students of this. Uh, in my case, I, it was actually my job to be involved in the uh, designation of this guy by the 1267 uh, committee. Uh, and of course, the US had the had him up on the most wanted list, you know, with his real name and everything. Um, you know, we've seen his Iraqi, uh, his Iraqi uh, citizenship documents and all the rest of it. Uh, so that stuff is that stuff is all well known. And yet here we are still talking about him as Abu Ibrahim, precisely because uh, there was never a real attempt by ISIL to uh, to give him, you know, to flesh him out in, the, in in that way. So 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 yeah, interesting to see what they do this time with whoever becomes the new uh, leader. But that brings us to the rationale, and you're absolutely right. If it was within Iraq and Syria, there would be a pretty universal understanding that you know they're 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 they're, they're under extreme pressure, uh, immediate danger to the life of anybody who is identified or communicates. Um, there's that within that theater, there would be understanding, even if there was a period when nobody actually knew when you didn't even you didn't even have uh, some uh, a, a statement that there's a person called Abu Ibrahim who's now the leader. 
but it does matter abroad. And it's not just in the remote provinces uh, where, you know, of course, they're very important in the choreography of this. And what we saw in late 2019 was all of these videos of all these guys jumping up and down, uh, you know, in uh, in the various uh, in the various locations where ISIL has got affiliates and pledging allegiance. So that was a really important piece of propaganda. And propaganda is absolutely critical to ISIL. It, interestingly enough, even when they were under the most extreme military pressure from 2017 to 2019, ultimately defeated, uh, you know, military disaster, people sort of being displaced, ending up in camps, all the rest of that stuff. Uh, and they, they folded a number of their functions because they said we can't maintain these functions because they're not essential and are what we have to do is simply to survive. So we only maintain our essential functions, which are military, security, finance, ideology, propaganda. And propaganda remained an essential function, has continued to function without interruption and from the core area ever since then. So they regard this as crucial. They regard the whole sort of idea of the global caliphate and the credibility that ISIL has globally as the leading international Salafi jihadi organization as absolutely essential to their future. And that's where this challenge is. They probably do have to go through this whole rigmarole of having these people jump up and down and pledge allegiance again, even if it's to an alias, even if it's to a phantom. They can't just say, well, you know, we're not going to comment on whether this guy's been killed and we're not going to tell you who the leader is, because if they do that, it runs the risk that some of the fanboys and girls around the world, some of the people who think ISIL is cool, lose faith and melt away. Oh, well, well said, well said. I mean, uh, the Islamic State's greatest strength, declaring the caliphate and having a charismatic leader is also its greatest weakness here. And I, 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 that's sort of the irony all of, in all of this. In your report, you note, and you had note, mentioned it, the detention f- facilities, the, the thousands of Iraqi uh, Iraqis and Syrians and other foreigners and even Westerners in these detention facilities in Iraq and Syria. I mean, it, reading this report, it's a, a fantastic summary, uh, again, of, of what is happening. But you know, these, these prisons, I mean, they're essentially breeding grounds. They're indoctrination centers for youths. I think you even use the term administrative center, if I'm correct. Uh, that's what I have in my notes here for, for the Islamic State. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll move on to, to how things look in Africa, because that's a, a rising theater. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is a, this is a critical point, and uh, that was one of the sort of you know new points in our report. Although we've focused on the the, the camps before, um, and it's very important, first of all, to say, and not least because I not least because I work for the United Nations. You know, I, I, I want to want to be very clear that this is a security issue. It's a counterterrorism issue, but it is also a huge humanitarian issue and human rights issue and due process issue. You know, you've got an awful lot of people who are victims who are, who are currently being held in 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 uh, one form or another of uh, accommodation or detention uh, in northeastern Syria, and you know the UN is very heavily focused also on the fact that you know you know let's let's say let's say a a, a one year old or two year old child who was moved from Baghouz when when the last vestiges of the uh, of the caliphate were 
militarily defeated in 2019, uh, you know, that, let's say, two-year-old child turns five this year. Okay, maybe that, maybe, maybe if that person is quickly repatriated and gets back to, uh, gets back to their, you know, to, 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 to their country of origin and is given the, the right kind of support, uh, you know, social care, um, maybe this thing can fairly quickly be put behind them. But even, even at five, you know, that's some quite scarring experience that that person is going through. Let's suppose it's a, a seven-year-old who's now 10. Um, that becomes a slightly different issue. Again, legally, this is a minor. This is an innocent. This is a victim. But this person is being progressively brutalized, progressively traumatized. And so we must initially stress the human rights and the humanitarian issue of this. this. This is something the international community has to get on top of because it is just unacceptable for so many people who are not capable of being prosecuted, either because they can't legally or, or indeed have not done anything wrong, um, but or, or in some cases they have, they have done something wrong, but there isn't evidence to prosecute them. But this has got to be dealt with to get these people uh, due process that they have to they have to be treated they have to be treated legally humanely uh, and uh, and ultimate and ultimately uh, you know given given the uh, support as well as as well as the uh, as well as the um, you know in the case of those who enter the judicial process you know the uh, the uh, you know the penal me- measures that may be appropriate so that was a little disclaimer that you know needs to be stated in this case but then yes. It's a it's a security issue. It's a counterterrorism issue, because as you know, ISIL made it a point of trying to brutalize children and a point of trying to compromise children, uh, giving you know taking children and making them take part in in executions or, or torture or things of that kind. Um, then, of course, you have an issue with uh, the the state of nationality or origin is going to have to look at that child and deal with them absolutely according to their rights as minors um, and you know treat them as a victim and not as a perpetrator because what are you going to do if you're a if you're a child and you're told to shoot somebody by somebody holding a gun you know what, what are your options um, but of course if the person is sufficiently brainwashed sufficiently traumatized sufficiently uh, brutalized um, then you know that that person is also a security threat and also needs is going to need you know very very careful support and monitoring, and then of course you've got you know so many adult women um, where you know you've got to pass between uh, some who may have been you know to some degree unwitting passengers on the journey to that place. Uh, it may be that their sort of criminal cap- criminal liability is mitigated by that. That to some degree they some degree they were taken against their will, or, or, or you know, maybe when they were there they they didn't do anything other than simply you know sort of set up home and try to uh, make sense of the situation that they were in. But of course there are many adult females who are extremely dangerous uh, and witting perpetrators, uh, and in some cases enforcers, in some cases. Uh, extremely violent, in some cases, uh, definitely at risk of becoming terrorist perpetrators. Um, and then, you know, and, th- and then, of course, you get into the actual uh, prison camps in northeastern Syria, where you've got uh, fighters, uh, including foreign uh, terrorist fighters. So 
this is a major issue. And it's it, and, and I think that the point we try to make in our reports, and I hope we've made it clearly in this latest one again, is that if we don't address this correctly, and that means legally and it means humanely, uh, and it means decisively in terms of actually getting on the front foot and getting people out of these breeding grounds, then we run the risk of, of, of exacerbating a long-term threat multiplier that will come back to haunt our successors and our children in 20 years' time uh, or sooner. Um, so so this, that's a critical point. And then you made that, you asked about that specific element on the, uh, on, on the, the degree to which our whole internally displaced camp which as you know it's a, it's it's essentially a camp it's essentially a camp for uh, displaced women and children uh, the great majority of, uh, of of the inmates there or the residents there uh, are iraqi or syrian but they're also there's a sort of foreigners annex there um this is uh, by far the largest facility in northeastern syria the population i think we cite in the report is roughly 60,000 probably gone down a little bit from that i think you know we've, we've sort of it's, it's it's on a downward trajectory because people are trying to deal with it they're trying to they're trying to repatriate and they're trying to process people um and maybe the numbers could be down into you know mid 50s now it's still more than it was designed for it's still overcrowded and uh it's very difficult for the uh the people who administer the camp and provide security for the camp even to go inside it the degree to which the ISIL writ runs within that camp, the degree to which there is, you know, ideological commitment amongst the residents to ISIL. So many of these people came there from having been in the caliphate, came there from uh, Baghouz when Baghouz fell. Um, so uh, it's this has been a sort of, again, a sort of an issue that's been talked about a lot is things like, you know, um, HISPA or um, sort of ISIL uh, um, morality police. Uh, female enforcement of, uh, of practice inside the camp. But what was new in our report was that we had member state information that not only is this camp sort of a, a little enclave that is uh, dominated by ISIL uh, ideology and, uh, and sort of, you know, if you like, internal enforcement, but it's actually treated by ISIL as a department of ISIL, effectively as an administrative unit of ISIL with relevance outside the camp. In other words, people sitting inside the camp and uh, actually processing, uh, you know, um, you know, financial, um, uh, financial uh, remittances and things of that kind uh, for people uh, outside the camp and not just in Syria, but also in, uh, also in Iraq. Uh, and so, you know, this is, I think this was an important point to make because, because yes, this is a humanitarian issue but yes, it, it is also uh, it is also a massive counterterrorism issue if uh, if this if this camp is functioning as a as you know on on, on some level uh, a safe haven for ISIL administration. Let's move over to uh, the evolving threat in Africa. Um, just briefly, Edmund, I'm going to ask you to give me. For, we'll start with the Islamic State in Africa. Um, just give me a brief overview. Where is it strong? Where is it weak? Um, you know, what, what what do you see of the developing trends there? Uh, it's relatively weak in North Africa, um, and you know. So I'll start with that because it's a relatively short story. Um, it hasn't bedded down well in Libya. There was a time when we were very concerned that it was going to, uh, you know, to, to grow strong in Libya, but it didn't. It, 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 I think it pursued poor tactics uh, in Libya. Uh, you know, picked the wrong fights, um, lost a lot of those fights, 
And it's relatively small in Libya, small elsewhere in North Africa. Um, some of the concerns that, uh, that have been uh, aired in the past about uh, Egypt and Sinai, uh, in particular Sinai in Egypt, um, those have abated somewhat. And we say in the report, you know, that, uh, you know, that, uh, that Ansar Beit al-Makdis, which is the, uh, the local group in Sinai that, cl- that pledged allegiance to ISIL, um, that they really haven't had much success recently. And uh, they've fallen victim to increasingly effective counterterrorism uh, measures. Um, so, so that's really all that needs saying, I think, about North Africa. It's not that we can relax. We shouldn't relax because there's always a risk in any any uh, place where you've got uh, conflict and ungoverned spaces, you absolutely have in Libya, um, that, this, that these groups can, uh, can regenerate. But then you come to, um, you move further south, and perhaps the, perhaps the most obvious place to start from North Africa would be the Sahel. Uh, so, you know, moving sort of south and west from Libya, uh, you find yourself in Mali um, and uh, neighboring countries like Niger, Burkina Faso. Um, and um, in, uh, in, in the tri-border area between, uh, between those three countries, uh, you have a franchise of ISIL, uh, which is called uh, IS Greater Sahara, or ISGS. Um, and um, that is quite a small franchise of ISIL. Uh, and it's not hugely successful, but it is quite resilient. And it, they, they kill a lot of people not least because the local authorities are rather weak. It's a sort of an, it's an operating environment in which they have, you know, quite a lot of freedom of action. You know, uh, particularly uh, Mali has been in chaos for a long time. Uh, Burkina Faso has been increasingly uh, thrown into, into chaos by the, uh, by, by the uh, extremist groups. And, and you know, we've, had, we've had a coup, of course, uh, as well. Um, and, uh, and then, the, you know, the border area with Niger as well. Um, so ISGS is significant, but not huge, and it's actually considerably weaker than the uh, than its uh, local uh, Al Qaeda affiliate, which we might come to in a minute. Um, ISGS is also umbilically linked with the ISIL West Africa province, which is further east uh, in the Lake Chad basin, and primarily located in Borno province in northeastern Nigeria, and. Uh, ISWAP, we'll call it, because you know, that's IS West Africa province, is by numbers of fighters, is the largest affiliate of ISIL outside Iraq and Syria. So very, very significant. Now, of course, Nigeria is a very big country and it's a relatively wealthy country um, with significant resources. Um, there's no danger of ISWAP being able to destabilize Nigeria, but it is. Uh, it's a major irritant and a major destabilizing factor in the security of that region of Nigeria. And it is keeping the Nigerian uh, security authorities and Nigerian military uh, under constant pressure and, uh, and constantly struggling to try to gain the upper hand over them. Now, ISWAP was also fighting a sort of a, uh, what was more of a sort of a fraternal conflict with Boko Haram, Boko Haram, from which ISWAP actually had split off. So a few years ago, you had um, Shekau, Abu Bakr Shekau, who was the head of Boko Haram. And then you had Abu Musab al-Barnawi and a a sort of dispute between the two of them. And Barnawi split off from Shekau. 
Chacal was also keen on ISIL. He wanted to pledge allegiance to ISIL, but ISIL didn't like him. They didn't trust him. He was a, as you know, he was a very colourful and incredibly violent and erratic and maverick character. If um, I may, Edmund, I, I, I kind of describe him as the Idi Amin of the jihad. I mean, it's, it's, what do you think of that uh, description of Chacal? He was just yeah. crazy. Cra- yeah, absolutely he, insane. Yeah, too insane even for ISIL. Right. I mean, it, just extraordinary. Um, and so they much preferred Barnawi because Barnawi was a more organized, more predictable, more disciplined guy. And so the split happened and remained unresolved for a period. But then, as we reported in our 28th report, uh, Barnawi uh, actually got the better of Shikau and Iswap forces managed to track uh, Shikau down uh, in the Sambisa forest. And Shikau uh, killed himself rather than be captured. Uh, and ever since then, there's been a process of Iswap trying to absorb the remnants of Boko Haram. And as we say in our latest report, with only partial success, okay, there are still some, you know, sort of uh, maverick or uh, renegade um, uh, Boko Haram elements who have not reconciled with Barnawi. But Barnawi presided over. Uh, an expansion of the strength and the prestige of Iswab. Now, Barnawi's personal fate is a little unclear. Uh, he had previously been displaced as the leader of Iswab and then reinstated. He lo- looks as if he may have been uh, displaced again. Uh, when he wasn't the leader of Iswab, he was actually doing the job of the sort of the regional representative of ISIL Corps, which is an interesting model when you think about it, because there is this interesting question about how does ISIL Corps manage its relationship with these remote provinces. And the nearest thing to an illustration of that that we have is, 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 is in the case of Barnawi in, uh, in the Lake Chad Basin. There is, there is some reporting that, uh, that Barnawi may himself have been killed in September, but we cannot confirm that. And given that there is a history in that part of the world of people being uh, reported dead and then turning up again alive, uh, we are saying that that is unproven. And we are not saying, we are not saying dead as far as we're concerned to the best of our knowledge the last that we knew of him he had uh, he had ceased to be the leader of this swap and he, he might have returned to the role of being the regional representative of the uh, of the uh, um, uh, of ISIL core um, their so-called directorate of provinces so um, this is instructive in terms of the global structure of, of ISIL because we believe that ISGS that I referred to earlier, which is which is uh, further west, um, is effectively a spoke that uh, reports to or is in some way dependent upon the hub, which is uh, the one in the Lake Chad Basin, which is Iswab. And so anyway, that's probably enough on West Africa. But, you know, major concerns about the impact of Iswab. And let's not forget the cross-border implications as well with Iswab. So Iswap mounts a lot of attacks in uh, in uh, Cameroon, uh, in Niger, and in Chad. Um, so it's it's a destabilizing influence, not just in northeastern Nigeria, but also uh, carrying across the border into those three neighboring countries. And it is, a, it is a major source of concern. And we must worry also, if they're getting bigger, do they then get more ambitious and more capable? And if they do, does that then start to... Because, re- you know, one of the things... There's an interesting... Very imprecise parallel to be made with what happened in the southern Philippines in Marawi. Uh, if you look at the city of Maiduguri uh, in northeastern Nigeria, um, you know what is the risk that at some point they decide that they could manage a foray into there? 
And now, of course, in the case of, the, of Marawi, it turned out to be a fatal error because they tried to hold it and they ended up being massacred, you know, defeated anyway, uh, decapitated uh, in, the, in the southern Philippines. And probably that uh, damaged the, uh, the uh, um, effectiveness and for some time has damaged the, uh, the uh, strength of, um, of ISIL in the Philippines. But um, if you had the self-discipline to have just tactical targets, to look at where are the banks, you know, something along those lines, um, and just the disruptive effect and the pr- propaganda impact of being able to do something of that kind. It's troubling. You know, it's troubling that ISWAP is getting stronger um, and it does need to be addressed. Then we come to uh, other parts of the continent, uh, and particularly, uh, let's say, let's call it uh, Eastern and Central uh, Africa, in order to cover the spread there, which is uh, goes from Somalia uh, to uh, the uh, DRC and to Mozambique, which is obviously you know fairway south. Um, that is interesting. We've we've been reporting for some time that there is a again a sort of an ISIL structure that that links those three theatres with the hub in Somalia in Puntland in northern Somalia um, and. Uh, and, and that, you know, there is some support that goes from Somalia to the presence in uh, northern Mozambique and the presence in uh, the eastern uh, DRC. Um, and we go into this in a lot of detail in our latest report, not least because there's still that residual interest in what happened in northern Mozambique earlier in the year, in, uh, uh, in March uh, of 2021, uh, where the the local group that has pledged allegiance to ISIL, which used to be known as uh, as, uh, as um, ASWJ um, and Sarasuna Waljama, um, known locally colloquially as Al Shabab, although it's not directly related to the Al Qaeda related Al Shabab in Somalia, um, a little confusing. But of course, Al Shabab just means the youth, um, and it can you know it's a fairly common term uh, for you know for sort of young extremists. Um, so that group uh, is still a problem in northern Mozambique, all there, although there has been some counter-terrorist pushback, but, you know, remains a significant concern that they've been able to uh, uh, have the uh, successes and the expansion that they did manage last year. Um, and then you've had quite a lot of activity going on in the DRC and some activity also uh, in uh, Uganda and Rwanda, and in the case of uh, in, in the case of, uh, of, of uh, DRC uh, Uganda, the group that we're talking about locally is ADF, um, the, the the Allied Democratic Forces, so-called, um, and it's that group. Uh, lead, the leadership of that group pledged allegiance to ISIL. That's a little controversial. There's some split within the group. There's a faction within the group that rejects that and says, no, we're not ISIL. We're still the ADF. So it's, you know, it's a nuanced picture. It's important to recognize it as a nuanced picture. But to some degree, these ISIL structures with the propaganda value, and again, this is where propaganda is so important to ISIL. You know, a lot of the ISIL propaganda focuses in on operations taking place in Mozambique, in the DRC. Uh, they want to make a really big deal of these things because it shows that they're active on a global scale. And of course, the local groups that have have embraced ISIL, for them, it's a big deal as well because it gives them uh, credibility rather than just local thugs. They can say, hey, we're, you know, we're, 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 international, we're, an, we're a front-ranked international terrorist group. And to some degree, it brings support. You know, a certain amount of uh, 
a certain amount of know-how, a certain amount of finance, uh, some of it funneled through or by the presence in Somalia. Um, so again, the the message we're sending, and this is, of course, you know, has to be linked also with the strength of Al-Qaeda affiliates in the region, particularly Al-Sabab in Somalia. And I mentioned uh, this group called JNIM, the, the Al-Qaeda-aligned coalition uh, in Mali, which is also very much present in uh, Burkina Faso these days uh, and also has started to uh, uh, started to um, spread and intrude and uh, encroach a little bit into the uh, the littoral states, you know, like Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, etc. Um, if you take the ISIL and Al Qaeda picture together, you have a very unsoft, unset, unsettling picture of gradual terrorist encroachment and expansion in a range of uh, sub-Saharan African theatres. Um, and so that is that is definitely a sort of a major theme of the report and a major concern of the UN. Yeah, the the irony is if that split didn't happen, could you imagine what? And you know, obviously, would be Al Qaeda led. Could you imagine what this would look like if the groups were operating in unison? There's been times in the past where we've seen it in Somalia, we've seen it in um, various other countries where the groups are fighting, you know, uh, fighting between each other. That obviously siphons off resources. Fighters are killed. You have, you know, a uh, multi. They're, they're operating against each other as opposed to the enemy that they that should be theirs, the, the local governments. But the, I'm going to make a real quick point. You mentioned on the uh, the reports of deaths of leaders. We Tom and I always joke that uh, these are these leaders. They're vampires, right? Unless you put a stake through the heart, chop off the head and expose them to sunlight. We can't really say that they're dead. So we kind of, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen reports that Shekau was dead over the last, oh, I don't know, 12, 12, 13 years. He's been dead so many times. looks like this one's stuck. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. So let's jump out and take a quick look at uh, Al-Qaeda in Africa now. I mean, I think in Somalia, I think this is uh, one of Al-Qaeda's greatest um it's probably its strongest, one of its strongest theaters um, outside of obviously Afghanistan at this point in time. Um, but I'm interested. Go ahead and tell us what the report uh, has, uh, has uh, looks at. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you can actually make a case for Al Shabaab as the strongest franchise of Al Qaeda worldwide anywhere, even 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 beyond even even uh, even above Afghanistan on a certain level. Obviously, you've got the leadership in Afghanistan, and as we've said massively enhanced concerns about you know what's going to happen um but uh in terms of you know when, i think people sometimes underestimate al-shabaab as a threat but al-shabaab has had its foreign terrorist fighters and al-shabaab is a uh, is you know um, it, it would like to present itself as uh you know a somali force a um you know a uh, a presence in somalia they would love to. Uh, they would love to run Somalia, and of course, this is another sort of significance of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. It's, it's Al Shabaab have been shouting about this and saying, "Oh, wonderful! You know, go Taliban," because of course they see a direct right, a direct read across. You know, you know, hey, if they can do it in Afghanistan, we can do it in Somalia, and that's a better analogy than any other uh, analogy with another Al Qaeda group that I can think of. Anyway, you can't see Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, being able to achieve, you know, that they've, they've tried to do something a little bit similar in parts of Yemen, but it's never really, uh, it's never really succeeded, and they, they they're not 
they're not anywhere near as strong as Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab is very strong and very developed, uh, very cohesive, uh, got strong revenue raising capabilities. A lot of it is done by, you know, uh, you know I mean, of course, it is extortion. It's illegal, but they would call it taxation, um, you know, and, and, and they're really good at it. So so this is a uh, this is a strong affiliate. But as the regional uh, the regional states will remind you, it is also very definitely an international terrorist group. Uh, it's doing a lot of bad stuff in the uh, neighboring countries. Uh, it's brought off a lot of uh, a lot of attacks in Kenya, regular attacks in Kenya, um, and you know it's it's not so long ago that uh, an Al Shabaab uh, Kenyan uh, was uh, was arrested um, whilst undergoing pilot training. And you know why do you undergo pilot training as a as an Al Shabaab operative? Um, that is not that is not going to be for the purposes of internal insurgency. Uh, it's very hard to see that in any other terms than as evidence of uh, Al Shabaab's continuing aspiration to pose uh, an international terrorist threat. Um, and so you know I think one of the things I hope comes through in the report uh, is just how seriously we do take uh, Al Shabaab as a franchise of Al Qaeda. Which it is, as you know, remember a self a self proclaimed franchise franchise of Al Qaeda. There's no doubt about this. It's not our analysis. It's what they themselves uh, acknowledge, um, and as a and as a uh, current and uh, potentially even greater international threat. Um, and then uh, I think the other sort of big one to mention on the African continent uh, is Jainim Jamat uh, Nusrat al Islam al Muslimin in Arabic. Uh, it is an Al Qaeda aligned coalition. And it includes some of the components from from Mali uh, that have been uh, fighting there for some time. But it also includes within that coalition, uh, and also to some degree, it's sort of its overlord and its uh, its its connection point uh, to uh, to Al Qaeda uh, leadership, uh, the Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb (AQIM), which is a sort of a you know sort of North African franchise. It's tended to be. Uh, Algerian. Uh, its last leader, Drukdel, was killed in 2020. Uh, he was an Algerian. He was also a very, very senior member of Al-Qaeda's uh, international leadership. Uh, he would have succeeded if he'd, if he'd survived and if uh, three or four uh, people ahead of him in the line of succession had died, he could have even taken over as the, as the global leader of Al-Qaeda. Um, and um, his successor, uh, whom we talk about in the report a, a little bit. Uh, we don't think that he's present in the Sahel. We think he's probably in in uh, maybe Algeria, some, somewhere present in North Africa at any rate. Um, he also has uh, international credibility. He also could be considered to be part of Al-Qaeda's uh, international leadership. But then uh, you have this uh, this this coalition, which which he is technically the leader of, um, but actually, its main effectiveness is in is in Mali, and as I say, increasingly spilling over into Burkina Faso, destabilizing Burkina Faso, uh, some activity uh, in the Niger border area, and then activity in the uh, Mali border area with uh, with Senegal, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and of course concerns about uh, spillover, not just. Uh, from Mali's borders, but also potentially from Burkina Faso's borders with those countries uh, between Cote d'Ivoire and Nigeria, so you know, um, uh, Benin, uh, Ghana, Togo, etc. Um, so Jainim is interesting because I don't think Jainim 
has the kind of insurgency capability, military capability that al-Shabaab has. It doesn't have anything like the numbers that al-Shabaab has, which threaten to, you know, actually to overwhelm the the government in in, in Somalia, uh, potentially. One, one hopes that they won't be able to, but you know it's it's not a it's not a fanciful idea, and certainly the again the Taliban inspiration uh, you know is is relevant there. In the case of Jainim, it's more of that they're, they're fighting a really smart campaign, which is more about uh, radicalization of society. They concentrate on fault lines and weaknesses in the countries where they're active. So you know wherever the writ of the government is weak and it is weak you know in outlying parts of Mali it's very you know it's one thing to control Bamako it's another to control the sort of you know such a huge area which Mali covers uh in Burkina Faso you know it's again it's one thing to control Ouagadougou it's another to 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 really control the the whole territory of the country and what Jainim has been doing is just eating away at that uh they've been they've been uh, mounting attacks on local authorities killing local head teachers or intimidating, driving them out in one way or another, and gradually uh, leading cause, causing people who are not you know people who are not afraid of them being killing them, you know, people who are not intimidated by them, in other words, people who are already ideologically on their side, to take over these key positions. And so progressively shifting the whole pH of the uh, of the local society in a more extremist direction. And so it's, 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 it's a much longer, slow-burning plan that Jainim is pursuing. But given the weakness of the national authorities in, uh, in, in Bamako, in, in Ouagadougou, um, they're having a lot of success. And so it's a different kind of threat. It's not quite the uh, direct insurgency threat that al-Shabaab poses, um, but it's serious. Yeah, I, I, I think it's growing, too. I mean, look, we, lest we forget, um, the predecessor to JNIM controlled uh, Mali, central Mali, from, what, 2011 to 2012. Shabab controlled, well, um, from 2007 to 2011, controlled much of southern and actually all of southern and much of central Somalia. So these groups have... Show, have shown the ability to take territory and hold it for a period of time. The only thing, in my estimation, holding Shabab back from getting there, from be, getting to that situation or getting to that, uh, you know, controlling the South and, and Central Somalia is the 22,000 African Union troops that are there. And that's, uh, even then, it's, it's, it's the tenuous situation. So yeah, the, the jihad in Africa, I think this is one of the undercovered stories. It's one, you know, we talk with my colleague, Caleb Weiss, and, and uh, it's one that we think is very, very important, you know, countries in Africa that you didn't think had a jihadist problem, um, you know, Senegal and then uh, right. Like years ago, you would never have thought that these were countries that we would have to worry about, um, terrorist groups operating and now it's it's become a serious problem and um it's great that you're keep you keep it you guys keep an eye on it the, the summary of this is just fantastic but uh so look we uh we cover the subject matter of the show it's often very very dark um it's it's just no escaping that the the situation is it's tenuous in a lot of areas in the country but 
for once, we maybe we could end on a on a positive note here. You mentioned in the report that the there was an actually a bright spot. Uh, it's a direct quote. One bright spot has emerged in Southeast Asia, where member states report significant success in disrupting ISIL and Al Qaeda affiliated terrorism and potentially forcing one ISIL affiliated group into retreat. End quote. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll wrap it up, Edmund. Yeah, so absolutely, and it is nice to end on a sort of a brighter note. And of course, in a sense, this is also slightly reflects another bright note in the report, which is that the 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 the, the threat level at the moment in what we term non-conflict zones is low, relatively low. Um, you know, it's partly because of you know counterterrorism successes. You know, if you if you defeat ISIL militarily, if you destroy their well, they are, they're obliged to give up their uh, their external operations capability. You know the attrition of Al Qaeda and its leadership, and they also have don't have a current you know external operations capability that can direct you know strategic level threats um, you know outside conflict zones. Um, you know that is a great counterterrorism success, and it's a point that we do try to make in our reports. You know that people always sort of think of terrorism as it's always a bad news story, but actually. If you have a relatively low threat level in, you know, whether it's on the streets of New York, where I am, or whether it's on the streets of, you know, Berlin, or whether it's on the streets of Kuala Lumpur, um, you know, pick your, pick your, you know, non-conflict zone, that is a success. I mean, that in itself means that these groups which have set their heart on international terrorism and on trying to destabilize and terrorize people around the world and undermine global security, at the moment, they're really struggling to do it. In fact, they're failing to do it. And so, you know, that's that's partly a shout out to, you know, all of those people doing this good work around the world, partly a shout out to the determination that, that, that led to the military defeat of ISIL and, you know, all of that stuff. So that's, that's your good news story for the non-conflict zones. And Southeast Asia, of course, by and large, is a non-conflict zone. Um, you know, these are these are rule of law countries, uh, well-governed. Um, and uh, so in a sense, it's it's partly an extrapolation of that. You know, ISIL struggling. You know, I, another fa- facet of this, both uh, globally, but also specifically in Southeast Asia, is that is that the is that the terrorist groups have taken a hit from COVID. It's hard for them to travel. When they travel, they get spotted. It's conspicuous. Um, You know, when they go and case the joint somewhere where they're trying to find a target, it's more conspicuous if people are not there. And maybe there aren't targets. You know, it's difficult to find. You know, there there isn't a concert that you can attack, like in Manchester. There isn't a restaurant you can attack, like in Paris, you know. Um... There isn't, in some cases, there isn't even a crowded street that you can drive into with a with a vehicle, uh, because because during lockdowns, COVID lockdowns and things of that kind, uh, you know, the streets have been quieter and there's been less public movement, and and therefore, again, you know, harder to find the targets, harder to case them, more likely that you get detected and uh, arrested uh, when you're trying to do it, uh, when you're trying to sort of plan your operation. So. That's part of the success story in Southeast Asia. And they have been able to make a lot of important arrests. And there have been some, also some important uh, killings of, uh, of terrorist leaders, including uh, the, uh, the guy who was, uh, the guy who was um, 
uh, under, you know, reported to be the, uh, if you like, ISIL's, uh, ISIL's sort of regional um, supremo there was killed uh, during our during our reporting period, um, and so that that's the, that's sort of the the essence of that good news story from Southeast Asia. It's not to say that the uh, it's not to say that there aren't still issues to be dealt with. Uh, the regional governments there they're very honest about the fact that there are still some problems uh issues to be dealt with they also have their own um foreign uh, uh element their own elements who are still in uh, in limbo in northeastern syria still need to be dealt with um so we're not we're certainly not saying that it's uh, that, that it's game over in southeast asia but we were very happy to be able to report that the picture there was uh, was uh, moving in the right direction yeah positive trend is a positive trend and we'll take it um Edmund, thank you again for joining us. This has been a, as always, it's a, it's a fantastic discussion and it is always a pleasure to have you on the program. And thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. This is episode 61. Our guest was Edmund Fitton Brown. He is the coordinator of the United Nations Security Council's analytical support and sanctions monitoring team. Uh, fantastic reporting from the group, great analysis. Uh, and just remember, uh, a reminder, you could uh, find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave, leave us a review, preferably a positive review. Thanks again, and we'll see you again soon.